You're going to open up to the book of John, John chapter 9. It's where we will be this morning. John chapter 9. Uh, we're, we're, we're back into this series that I have uh, loosely entitled All In for 2020, the Redux edition, the reboot. Uh, kind of going back and, 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 and talking about what we looked at back in January and February of this year, where we talked about what it looked like to be all in for Jesus, but we, we did so in full ignorance of what was about to come with the rest of uh, 2020. Uh, so it's, it's a bit of a reboot for us, as many of you guys are experiencing right now in your, uh, in your own um, your own life, you know, the year begins with this sense of optimism, and then somewhere around March we get kicked in the teeth, uh, and we look like we've gone 10 rounds with Rocky, and now we're just in August, and we're trying to figure out, okay, where do we go from here? So the, the, the good thing, though, is built into our calendar is this uh, school calendar as well. It kind of gives us a chance, as we are now here in this eighth month, to kind of reboot, to kind of reset, to say, all right, how do we get our feet back under us? How do we kind of find our sea legs a little bit here and figure out how do we move forward in this year? The last few months we've been talking about the attributes of God, who He is and what He's like. We've been insistent that a, a proper view of God is important about how we, uh, important to us about how we process the, the world and what's going on around us, how we respond. And this year is a prime example of that for us because we know that God is both omnipotent and omniscient. We know that he was not taken surprise by the events of this year. He is all-knowing and he is all-powerful. He wasn't taken aback. He wasn't rocked back. He knew all that was coming and he did not blink. He is like the navigator that was high above the fray and, and he could see us on a, on a road that, that he knew where it, it led. But here's the thing. He knew that, but we did not. You see, that may be God's attribute, that He knows all, but that is His alone. We do not know all. We did not know what was coming. We did not know what was about to happen. We can't see all, know all, or control all. So while we may have felt like we'd been sucker punched this year, God was not. And it's okay for us to admit that we feel like that. It's okay for us to admit that we felt like we were completely out of control because we were. That is not a, a, a confession of anything other than our inadequacy in who we are and the way that we are made. So the question that we're asking in this brief little series here that's just a couple of weeks long is... Okay, 2020 knocked us on our heels, knocked us back. It may have knocked you flat on your back, or maybe it just kind of left you, uh, you know, kind of bobbing and weaving just a little bit. I don't know what this year has been uh, for you, but it's, 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 it's thrown us off kilter a little bit. But now what? Now what? What's next? And I believe what is next is that this year has not told its story just yet. I believe that we can tell a better story about this year when we get to the end of this year than the one we feel like maybe has already been written. Now there may be a few chapters already covered in this book, but this book has not been written on this year just yet. 
And I firmly believe that here as we step into the beginning of August that we can change the narrative of what is happening uh, around us from a year that is defined by the sucker punch to the year that perhaps changed us, grew us, opened our eyes a little bit more to the greatness of God. But if that's going to happen, then right now, today, in these days, we must get our hearts refocused, recentered, redrawn to who God is and what He can do in the midst of this year. So this morning, I want to read the story of a guy that uh, has a story to tell and one that he is more than ready to tell. It's a story that I don't think any of us will probably feel like we can relate to, at least not uh, totally, but as we get into it, Uh, I think maybe we will have more that we can identify with this man than we realize. It's a famous one. We're going to be talking about one of Jesus' miracles. And I think if you were to go up to the average person and you were to say, what kind of miracles did Jesus do? This one would probably be right up there at the top. One of the top one or two. Probably say something about walking on water. Probably say something about healing the blind. And this morning we're going to look at one of those times where he heals a blind man. So let's read in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and he came back seeing. So that's it. That's the miracle. That, that's the story of what happens in the miracle. Oftentimes in the Gospels, whenever you read about one of Jesus' miracles, that's all you get. It's just the simple account of this is what happened. You know, just shown that the, the miracle happened, it was recorded and written down, and that's all that we're given oftentimes. Just this simple act of faith following the, the instructions of Jesus and Jesus' Uh, Jesus's actions in order to perform the miracle. Oftentimes, that's all we get, but not this time. This time, we get a ton of follow-up. In fact, this entire chapter is talking about this one miracle. We get all kinds of follow-up about what's going on here. More than any other miracle that is recorded, we get we get kind of the backstory and the the aftermath, really, of what has happened here. And so, John is trying to help us. Uh, I don't know if this pun's intended or not, but he's trying to help us see something by giving us everything here in chapter 9. He's trying to help us be able to pull some more things out. He wants to make a point by looking in depth at this miracle. So let's read a little bit more and see if maybe we can pick out a couple of things that John is trying to communicate to us from this simple miracle if there is such a thing. John chapter 9, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So these people were trying to to decide, like, this guy can see now. Is that the same guy or does he just kind of look like the guy? And he's like, 
I'm standing right here, people. I can hear what you're saying. I am now able to both hear and see. I can see you. I'm the guy. Quit arguing about this. I'm, I'm the guy that can now see. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his, his son. Oh, sorry. It was too far. So, that, so they said to him, then how were your eyes open? So they want to know. All right, fine. If you're the guy... How did your eyes get open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. So they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. I went to this, this pool and washed my eyes. That's, that's, I don't know where he's at. You go find him. I'm trying to figure it out myself. I'm trying to figure out what just happened. I don't even know what he looks like. I haven't seen him yet. He's trying to figure out himself where Jesus is. So they brought the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. I told you this already. I'm telling you, that's how it happened. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them, among the Pharisees. So we move forward a little bit in the aftermath of the miracle, and the Pharisees have now entered the picture. So this guy can now see, he was born blind, but now he has vision, which can you imagine what that must have been like for him? I cannot. That would have been uh, incredible. He's now able to take in all these sights, these things that he's heard described to him, these things that perhaps he is felt as he walked along the way these things that he assumed looked a certain way now he's looking at them saying oh that didn't look like that at all he's seeing colors for the first time he's seeing all of these different things but in one instant the narrative has changed it has moved from the 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 happiness of this man who can now see to instead the agenda of the pharisees they have thrust themselves into the middle of this narrative and they demand answers but do you see what happens whenever the Pharisees show up? When they, when they show up and they start asking all these questions, do you see who kind of gets left out in all of this? The formerly blind guy. Like he's not the center of the story anymore. John shifts and now the center of the story is the Pharisees, not this guy that can now see. He moves from being the, the point of, of celebration and the focus of the story that, that is ironically the, the primary eyewitness to what has happened. And the Pharisees now kind of thrust themselves in and say, we've got to do some work here. We've got to figure out what's going on. And the first thing that they do whenever they come to this guy is not high five and say, man, that's awesome. That's so great. I can't believe that this has just happened. They don't even bother to talk to this guy other than to figure out something for their own agenda, other than to answer their own questions about these theological disputes that they have, that is all that they are worried about. They're not concerned about this man at all. All they're concerned about is their rules and figuring out if their rules have been broken and figuring out how Jesus was able to pull this off. My heart breaks for this blind man as I read this. People should be celebrating. 
People should be organizing parties. They, they should be taking him around town and saying, look at this beautiful sight that you've never seen before. Maybe you've, you've heard it described, but you haven't seen it. So now you can see it. Let me take you out to the countryside. Let me take you up on a mountain so that you can see it overlooking the entire city. Let me take you to the sea so that you can see the, uh, everything that is there. Let, let's, let's organize something for sunset so you can see your first sunset ever. And we'll set something up for the morning and you can see your first sunrise ever. And let me take you to all all these places. Let me take you to your parents. You've never seen your parents. I bet you'd love to see your parents. You know your mother's voice, but now you will know her face. Like that's what should be happening in these moments. But instead, he just becomes part of a theological agenda of these Pharisees. People should be hugging and loving this man. Instead, they have one agenda. Find out more about this Jesus and stop him, from, stop him from doing these type of unapproved things. This is not our main point this morning, but this is a good lesson for us to learn for all of life. But especially for those of us who call ourselves Christians here in the church. Those that play the religious game are far more worried about their religion and their system and their rules and how they look than they are about people. And friends, I just want to ask you, where is your heart this morning? Why are you here this morning? Why are you watching online this morning? Why are you doing these things? Are you here because you're worried about following the rules, checking the boxes, and doing what you're supposed to do? Are you here so that you can care for someone else, so that you can serve someone else, so that you can encourage someone else, so that you can be there for someone else? How did you walk into this room this morning? Did you you walk in saying, who's here that I can encourage? Who's here that I can pray for? Who's here that I can know? As you sit at home, are you listening and thinking, how can I care for others? Are you just thinking, I'm supposed to do this, so here I am, and I'm going to do this now. In your heart of hearts, when you wake up in the morning, are you pursuing something and just saying, this is what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to do it? Or are you pursuing people? Let me ask it a different way. Husband, how do you view your wife? Do you view your wife the way that the Pharisees viewed this man as a means to an end? As, as, as someone that you need to figure out so that you can figure out exactly how you, you can get what you need to get from her? Do you have a list of expectations that you think need to be met? And then if she doesn't meet those, you withdraw, you check out, you give up, you, you get angry, you, you, you whatever. How do you view your wife? Is she someone that exists so that you can get your needs met and so that you can get something from her? Or... Is she someone that you recognize that is supposed to be loved and pursued? Is your relationship about your pursuit of her and her pursuit of you? Or is it about what you can get from one another? Ladies, how do you see your husband? Is your husband simply just the person that helps you get your checklist done every day? Is your husband just the person that helps run the kids from practice to practice that takes care of this chore, that does that chore, that makes this money, that does this, that does that. In a relationship like that, the heart of it can't be what you can get from each other, but what you can give to one another and how you can pursue one another. 
So how do you view people in your lives? How do you view others? Parents, how do you view your kids? Are they people to be pursued, to be known, to be loved, or are they just little kids to be ruled and governed and disciplined? How do you view your coworkers? Are your coworkers just people that exist for you to, to, to get certain things done? I mean, after all, that's part of the arrangement of work, right? Is that you're there to get some things done. So you, you view that person across from you, that person that you come in contact with if you're at work, do you view that person as simply allies and getting a job done, or do you see that person first as a person? Students, who are your friends? Are your friends just people that you want to hang out with because they entertain you? Because they help you pass the time because they're better than hanging out with mom and dad? And so you can get something from them and they can get something from you? By far, that's what most relationships are built on in high school and even in college. It's what you can take from one another, what you can get from one another, not so much who the other one is, or who cares for each other. Listen, you will never be a person that matters until people matter to you. And here's the bottom line for the Pharisees. People didn't matter to them. The rules mattered to them. Their system mattered to them. Their religion mattered to them. And that's it. That's what they loved. Some of you know what it's like to love the rules. You love the order that the rules bring, the structure, the logic, the simplicity, the focus. But Jesus has not called us to love our rules and our systems. He has called us, first and foremost, to love people. And so I just want to ask, is that you this morning? Are you marked in your own heart, in your own mind? What is it that drives you? Are you known by your love for people? And not just people generally, but the people that are closest to you in your life. Are you known by your pursuit of them? Or are you known by the systems and the rules that govern that relationship? Which one is it? Do you love people or do you just love what those people in your life can get you? Do you just love the agreement that you have entered into that, that they will help you achieve certain things and you will help them achieve certain things and you will abide by these rules and they will abide by those rules and that's how life will go and you just want to know what can you get me at the end of the day? This is not a question to be glossed over. It's at the heart of what it means to live like Jesus and to be what he has called us to be. It's at the heart of what it means to live life as a Christian. If you answer that question or dismiss that question too quickly, I'm going to bet that you would benefit from a little bit of meditating on that question today. What are people to you? A means to an end? Or the thing that you pursue the most? For the Pharisees, people didn't matter all that much. They just wanted to know how does what this person is going through fit into my system? And I will run over anybody 
that tries to, tries to mess with my system, and I will make them fit. Let's keep reading in verse 17. The, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? So they, they talked to this blind man, they said, what do you say about Jesus? We've got our opinions, we're arguing with one another. What do you say about this man since he has opened your eyes? And he said, well, he, he's a prophet. In verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he, had been, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? And his parents asked, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but how he sees now, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. So they bring his son to his parents and they're like, can you verify that this is your son? And they're like, yeah, that's our son. And that's all I can tell you. I can tell you he was blind. He can see how he got that way. Who did it? We don't know. Don't bring us into this controversy that you got going on. Don't bring us into this argument. We're just going to tell you this is how it is. You do what you want with it, guys. This is our son, and this is what happened. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they were like, I'm not about to vouch for this Jesus guy because you're going to throw me out of my community and I'm going to lose all of my friends. So all I can tell you is he can see. Do what you want with it. And therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So go ask him. You can have that conversation with him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a, sin, that this man is a sinner. So they're saying, tell the truth, glorify God, communicate what has happened to you, tell us what really, really happened. We know it couldn't have been Jesus, because Jesus did this on the Sabbath. We know he's a sinner. If he's a sinner, he couldn't have healed you. So just tell us what really happened. So this guy answers, whether he's a sinner or, a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's simple for him. It's so simple for him. He doesn't want to get caught up in their theological arguments and their theological controversies. They go back to this man and they want to know his take. And he says, that man is a prophet. I can see for crying out loud. My eyes work. They didn't work this morning whenever I got up. They didn't work when I went to the road to beg like I do every single day. But they work now. This man has to be a prophet. And the Pharisees recognize that they can't really argue all that much with, with what he's saying. Because if he really is a guy that can now see, then something miraculous had to have happened. So they keep doing this digging. They, bring, they, they, they go back to his parents not to party, not to celebrate, not to high five and say, man, that's amazing your son can see. I bet you're so excited. They don't do that at all. They just go and they're, they're, they're looking at the parents. And what do they want from the parents? They want the parents to affirm what they think must be true. They're not interested in the parents at all. They just want to know what they can get from the parents. And so they go back and they tell this guy, tell us the truth. We know Jesus couldn't have done it. Let's not be silly. Let's not play games. What really happened? And basically he says, say what you want. Do what you want. Call him what you want. I don't really care. Here's what I know. I'm looking at you guys right now. We're having this conversation face to face. I'm looking you 
eye to eye. I couldn't have done that a few hours ago, but I'm doing it right now. I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it this morning. And yet here we are. And here's what I want you guys to see out of this interaction. I don't want to get too lost in theological controversies and what the Pharisees are doing here. I just want you to see this formerly blind man and how simple things are for him. I want you to see the clarity with which he sees the world now. Not just in the fact that he can see, but in the sense that other things are making sense to him because of what has happened to him. And because of what has happened to him, all this other stuff the Pharisees are throwing out there doesn't really matter all that much. That morning when that man woke up, he had one goal. To get to the road. To get to the road so that he could beg for money, so that he could beg for food. And it's the same goal he had the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that. And as far as he knew, it's the same goal he would have for the rest of his life. Just to get to the road and plead for someone to show him mercy. To give him money. This man was born into some measure of chaos, and that chaos was never going to leave him. But then Jesus changed everything for him. And once that happened, the man had two things that he absolutely knew to, to be true. That he could see, and that Jesus did it. That he was blind, and now he could see, and that Jesus did it. That was it, and that was all that mattered to him. The Pharisees wanted to rope him into this controversy, but he would have none of it. He could see. Jesus did it. Everything in his life filters through that grid now. Everything. Everything goes through that grid. He could see Jesus did it. The Pharisees could throw him out of the synagogue. His parents were worried about that, but he wasn't. He didn't care. You know why? Because he wasn't allowed in the synagogue in the first place. He didn't lose anything out of this deal. The Pharisees could sneer and dismiss him. He didn't care. You know why? Because that's what they'd done to him his whole life anyway. All he knew was all that matters. Listen to this theology lecture that he unloads on the most religious scholars of his day. Verse 26. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Do you want to hear it again? I love this question. It's like something's clicking in him. Why do you keep asking me this question? Oh, wait a minute. I know. Maybe you want to be his disciples too. I just can imagine like the, the like, Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we're asking this for. It's... I, I love that he asked that question. He says, do you want to become his disciples? In verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And then listen to the blind man's response. Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world has began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not, he could do nothing. So he unloads this. He's like, you guys say you're theologians, but look at the evidence before you quit denying the obvious truth before you. And then they answered him, and their blindness is dripping with irony. You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And then they did exactly what they threatened they would do. They cast him out. So this man that was born blind can now see see so much clearer now. Why? Not because he studied. He didn't go study under a rabbi. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't do any of those things. He simply knew two things. He was blind. Now he could see. And Jesus, Jesus did that. And everything filtered through that. And the Pharisees began with their rules and they started with their rules and everything was built around their rules. One focused on what people do. The other focused on what Jesus had done. One theology got it right. One theology got it wrong. And in a very real way, this is what Christianity is. Every other system of belief in the world is built on what we do. On following the rules or trying to follow the rules and then what you do whenever you don't follow the rules. Following some set. Perhaps that set of rules is written down in a book that they consider holy or perhaps it's just written in 140 characters that will be expired by the time it's the, the day ends. But the rules are written somewhere. Every person has a system of belief. Something that guides how they interact with each other and how they process their own hearts. The filter that the Pharisees use is the one that all of us begin with in how we see the world. It focuses on what people can do in order to make things right to somehow fix what has been broken, to correct whatever is inside of us whenever we realize things aren't right. It asks the question, what must we do to fix what is wrong in our world and in ourselves? This is the default system we are all born with. But the resounding answer of Christianity is, you can do nothing to fix this. Your best attempts to correct the brokenness of this world will be broken themselves. And what you will find is that you will never find a way to atone for your own sins, nor the sins of the rest of the world. You will solve one disease only to be met with another one. You will eradicate one thing only to have another take its place. What Christianity says is that we do not begin with what we can do to bring restoration and forgiveness. We must begin with what has been done just like this blind man all we know is that once we could not see and now we can and jesus did it and everything else flows from that we do not lean on our own actions to fix or correct things we keep bringing people back to the cross to show them what has already been done there 
And there we find our call, we find our hope, we find our mission. It's not as though Christianity does not send us out with work to be done. It does. But that work flows from what has been done. It doesn't try to be the thing that fixes us. You see, things are drastically different in this world than they were eight months ago when this year began. Some say we will mark our lives much the way that we do with 9-11, that there is a pre-9-11 and a post-9-11 world, that there will be a pre-COVID and a post-COVID world, and that may be true. We'll see how how many of these changes stick around forever and how it changes us. There's no doubt that some things have changed. But the mission we began with in 2020 was make, grow, and unleash disciples. To glorify Jesus by making, growing, and unleashing disciples. And that mission has not changed at all. That is still our call. We we bring people to the cross. That has not changed changed we look to jesus for restoration that has not changed we look to the future when he will restore all when he will wipe away every tear when all disease will be eliminated that has not changed in spite of all that has changed in the last eight months as we talked about this summer god has not changed nor has the truth of the cross Our goal is still the same. Just keep bringing people back to what Jesus has done. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that we are sure of. Just like this blind man, that we were blind, now we see, and that it was Jesus that opened our eyes. I want you to go back to the beginning of John chapter 9. You can keep reading. There's a little bit more of the story there. You can kind of read the rest of it. But I want you to go back to the beginning of John chapter 9 where we began this morning. And I want to draw out just a couple of things. John chapter 9 verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus clears up some bad theology, turns it into a lesson about good theology, and then he moves us forward. And I have at various times during this year kind of replayed this scene in my head. And I think through this, if, 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 if Jesus were here to talk to us back in January and we, we had the ears to hear him, I wonder if he wouldn't have said something very similar to this. He'd tell us what's about to happen is going to be chaos, it's going to be terrible, but the mission doesn't change. It is still about glorifying God. It is still about becoming disciples, growing disciples, unleashing disciples. And I'm going to be with you in all of it. I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. And you are going to have a chance to glorify me in every step of this year. 
you have no idea what's coming. And you're going to ask questions about why is this happening, God? And I'm convinced his response is, I'll make that clear to you whenever you need to know it. But for now, this is here because you have a chance to glorify me in the midst of this. And so now here we sit in August. And my question for you is, if you knew that back in January, would you have still been all in? And if Jesus were here to say the same thing to us today, would you be all in? Because of the reality is, this could be true every single day of our life. We can see it clearly now if we go back in the past and we go back to January, but that's... I'm convinced that Jesus is telling us the same thing. This world will be hard. It is broken by sin. It is ravaged by sickness. It is torn down by hate. It is marked by its brokenness. We don't know what's coming in September and October and November and December. But we know that this world is going to be broken whenever we, whenever we engage with it and whenever we watch it. And we know that's going to be true even in our own hearts. And Jesus is saying, in the midst of all of that, there's a chance to put my glory on display. Will you do that? Will you be a part of that? Because that's what it means to be my disciple. A couple of weeks ago, we had a chance to go to the beach, our regular trip that we take in Memorial Day or around uh, Memorial Day got pushed back. So we got a chance to go, just our family to the beach. We went down to Amelia Island just outside of Jacksonville. It's a great little spot. And that, the first day we were there, we got out in the water. It's actually pretty calm there, especially for the Atlantic side. And we got out in the water and there's some waves coming down. And it really wasn't anything that kind of got your attention it just wasn't, it wasn't really rough w- waves at all whenever we got there. And we got out in the water and we were playing out there with the, Emily and I and, and Abby and Isaiah with the, the kids were playing around. We'd been in the water for a pretty good while. And Abby or Isaiah, I can't remember which one it was, they kind of looked, looked up at me at one point. And where we were standing, it was about waist deep, but you could kind of sink down and be about shoulder deep. And that's where I was, my feet touching the ground. Uh, but either Abby or Isaiah, they, they weren't touching the ground. They were just kind of floating in the water. And at one point, they had gotten pretty far away, you know, kind of from, from here to the, the wall away from me, from where I was at. And they kind of kept getting further. And, and, and they said, hey, how come you keep swimming far away from me? And I'm like, but I've not moved. My feet are touching the ground. I'm right where I was when we started this. You're the one that moved way over there. He's like, no, 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 no. I, I didn't swim over here. I've just been floating. I didn't go anywhere. That's where we explain. This is how undertow works. This is how the riptide works. This is how this happens. You see, you are getting pulled over there, but you have no idea that it's happening. And sometimes that's the way that it works. God's anchored. He's not going anywhere. You know, I told, I, I told, I think it was Isaiah, I told Isaiah, look back at our chair up there, man. I'm right in front of where our chair was. You're the one way down the beach, not me. 
He's like, oh man. He realized at that point that he had been taken away by the ocean and he had no idea it had even happened. And sometimes that's how it works. You just go about life. Satan is crafty. He is sneaky. He will find ways to pull you away from your relationship with God. He'll find ways to pull you away from your relationship with others in the church. He'll find ways to pull you away from things. And you won't even know it happened. You'll just look up and you'll say, God, you're so distant. How did you get so far over there? Why did you walk away from me? And God's like, I've not moved. You've let the world carry you away and you didn't even know it was happening. But here's the flip side of this too. here's, Here's the other way that this works. By the end of the week, there was a hurricane warning for Amelia Island. We, we got out of there the day before the hurricane. This one that just, just came through just before it came and was supposed to get to Amelia Island. It never ended up hitting Amelia Island, but they had a hurricane warning, and they also had a riptide warning ahead of the hurricane. And what it, what, what it said was, you may not see all of the wind, you may not see the storm, But there's going to be rough surf, and it'll knock you over, and it'll knock you down. And if you get knocked over, and you get knocked down, and you combine that with the undertow, it may take you out to the ocean, and you not even know what has happened. So make sure that you swim if you're out there near a lifeguard stand. And if you go on up the coast, the hurricane did hit there, and it battered up against the coast. And sometimes in life, that's what it looks like. It looks like a Category 5 hurricane has come right through and ripped through your heart, ripped through your life, knocked you on the ground, and left you for dead. And Satan is perfectly fine to work that way too. Sometimes he wants to be subtle and pull you away, and sometimes he just wants to knock you flat on your back. So long as you're not pursuing God and you're not interested in that relationship, that's fine. Sometimes it's obvious the way that we get knocked over. Sometimes it's obvious in the ways that we get knocked off mission and our focus gets redirected. Sometimes it's obvious when that happens and other times it happens and we don't even know it. But you see, that's where that lifeguard stand is so important. I like to think that that's kind of how the the church operates. Swim near the lifeguard stand so that whenever you do get knocked over, you have someone that can jump in and that can can pull you back to shore and say, it's going to be all right. So that whenever you are getting swept away silently and quietly and you don't even realize it, you're getting pulled away, that lifeguard can say, Hey, hey! look, your, your stuff, your community, your family is back up the, the beach. You've gotten, you've gotten taken away too far. Let me pull you back this way. I think that's how the church is supposed to, to, to act. I think that's what we're supposed to be. But if you choose to swim far away from the lifeguard stand, if you choose to say, I got this myself, I'm a good swimmer, I'll pay attention, I'll be fine you might just find yourself caught in the undertow and not figure out how to get out of it. We're not meant to do this on our own. 
years like this, and maybe this year hasn't been that for you, but there's been something in your life or there's something that's coming that will knock you on your back. You're going to need the lifeguard on the lifeguard stand, and even more so than that, you're going to need the one who gives life. My encouragement to you is that perhaps for some of you, this year has looked a little bit subtle for you. And maybe you just need to look back on the beach and realize, man, I've gotten far away from my family. I've gotten far away from my community that can help me. I need to come back. I need to, I need to get out of the water. I need to walk back and quit fighting against this undertow that has drifted me away. And for some of you, you're laying flat on your back. And my encouragement to you is, it's August. You have your community around you. It's time for all of us to stand back up, to get on our feet, even if we're shaky and wobbly and we're a little punch drunk. It's time for us to refocus, to recenter, to get back on mission, and to be just like this blind guy to be reminded that in spite of all the other chaos going on around us, we were blind, and now we see. And those two things, knowing that Jesus is at the center of that, that's all that really matters. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have not left us to swim on our own. Father, we tire quickly. We cannot fight against the current on our own. The waves will batter us. They will break us. They will bruise us. They will leave us gasping for air and they will leave us dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. But you came and you brought us up out of that. Father, I pray for those of us in here that this morning that have realized that we have drifted, that we have gone, that we have, we, 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 we've gone down the beach and we've gotten away from you, we've gotten away from our community, we've gotten away from those that love us and that would help us. I pray that you would recenter us and bring us back to this place you have called us to be, on mission, focused on what you have done, focused on the cross. Father, I pray for those in here that have been knocked flat on their backs. That right now the idea of standing up on their own two feet sounds utterly impossible. Father, I pray that you would stabilize their hearts. That you would fill their bodies with strength that you would clear the cobwebs from their mind, that you would heal their hearts, help them to stand, and to lean fully on you. Father, for the rest of us that are just playing on the beach, I pray that you would help us to trust in you when the hurricane comes. to know that the only place we find life is in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.